Welcome to Excavate, Uncovering Our Place in God's Story. I'm Heather Strongmore. And I'm Jamie Dawn. In our previous episodes about Mary, we kind of shied away from specific Advent and Christmas themes. So this week, we're going to look at the women of Advent and the way that God elevates the voices of women when Jesus enters the story in his birth. We'll talk about the strength we can draw from their stories and the way these women may represent biblical types. Let's dig in. I think it's really striking how little the men of the Christmas story speak and how much space is given to the women of this story. I'm really excited to think about what that means that God is in this new thing of Jesus entering the world as an infant, um, that we see the voices of women elevated. The stories of women are such a central part of the story. And I think it's indicative of what Jesus is doing, what he's ushering in as he comes to the earth in this way. And I think we learn so much when we look at these stories of these women. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I do think it's such an interesting and sort of comical contradiction. I think that on the one hand, we reduce Mary to only Christmas time, which is part of why we did avoid a little bit of getting overly Christmassy in our Mary episodes because we wanted to broaden our understanding of Mary and the times of year that we talk about her and like honor her story and just all her different contributions. Um, But I, at the same time, then Mary's kind of the only woman that we talk about at Christmas and sometimes Elizabeth a little bit, Uh, but often not even all that much other than maybe reading the passage of Mary going to visit Elizabeth. Um, And so I do think there is just so much that we reduce on the one hand, reducing Mary to only Christmas time, but then also reducing the role of women around the birth of Christ to only being Mary. And there are many other uh, just contributors, uh, like women who are surrounding the birth of Christ that have just really interesting things to point us to as well. That's so true. And I think, you know, we referenced a couple different times in season one, Anna, but I, I think it's significant that basically every aspect of the birth of Jesus is surrounded by women playing a role. And so we see that in Anna and her prophecy. Um, and we see that in Mary and Elizabeth. And I think, um, part of me doesn't want to say this. We're certainly not minimizing the role of men. Um, and mm-hmm. also I think we're, we're drawing out the reality of scripture. I mean, the fact that Zachariah is literally silenced by the Lord in order to protect the promise that God speaks about to him. I think, you know, that is real. That's what happens in the story. It's certainly not minimizing the role that he plays, but just naming the reality of, um, because he is silent, Elizabeth gets to play such, um, a significant role. And I think even that does speak to us about what God's doing, um, and who gets to give voice to it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I love that. I just love you pointing out that there are women the whole way through. And even on the one hand, you could say, oh, it's only in Luke's gospel. That's more about Mary. And we even talked about that some in our 
episodes about Mary that Luke probably interviewed Mary. And so there's some really rich, just historical narrative that's there. But even in the Gospel of Matthew, that tends to be primarily about Joseph. And for sure, the Advent story is from Joseph's perspective. And there's nothing wrong with that. Again, that's still really interesting and good. But Matthew begins with the lineage of Christ. And we have a whole episode about that. That is about the women who are included in the line of Jesus. So it is so true that from the very beginning, the the authors of the gospels are making it very clear that we're doing a new thing and that Jesus is doing a new thing and breaking down old barriers, old assumptions, just old practices and paving a new way forward for the church. And I just don't think we can overemphasize how striking I think that would have been for the listeners, particularly of Matthew, this gospel that is um, written from a more like Jewish perspective and being able to see that thread of the genealogy and the women that are mentioned, like that would have been um, a very significant thing for the original listeners of it. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to start with one of the potential places that we may have overlooked women in this story. And that is in the presumption that the shepherds were male. And I think for the most part, that's how we picture it. Um, and even, you know, in like pageants, probably mm-hmm. the little girls play the angel and the boys play the shepherds. Um, and there's a lot of good reason for that. Uh, but it is interesting that in the ancient Near East, women often worked as shepherds. And that is um, something that I think is being drawn out a little bit more recently. Um, and I think for us, we see that as like a real place of excavating scripture and saying, what are the layers that we've added? Have we assumed that the shepherds are male? And we obviously have some significant male shepherds. We see David is one of those that I think we often refer to, um, and so we we have that model in scripture, but what we often overlook is that we actually do have two very significant biblical references to female shepherds. And um, I think those could be even something that the Lord is meaning to refer to in speaking to shepherds. So um, we wanted to read the two uh, verses where we see those. So we first meet Rachel as a shepherd. Um, in the Old Testament in Genesis 29, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherd. And so she meets uh, her husband at the well when she is there to get the sheep water. And then again, we we have kind of a similar story in that we are introduced to Moses's wife, Zipporah, Uh, who we don't often talk about. Um, And she, it says, now a priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Um, And so we get this picture there too of another female shepherd um, and that she actually, that later Moses um, comes to that same well and she also meets Moses at at the well there as she's, there in her role as a shepherd. And so I think 
it it's just interesting to think about where we've made presumptions in the story where we've added things on that aren't in the text it doesn't give we don't have a real indication of who these shepherds are and what that would mean and so I think it's just really helpful to be reminded even of that that we do presume certain things about the story and that there's ways that peeling back those layers is just helpful to remind us that there's there might be things that we're um adding on and making assumptions about Mm -hmm. yeah totally yeah a friend of ours suggested this like theory slash like somewhat newer scholarship to us somewhat recently in the last few months and my initial reaction was incredulity really I was kind of incredulous (laughs) of like what no that sounds like maybe some like just retrofitting of something to be more PC you know whatever of just like sometimes we can have like wishful thinking a little bit of like Mm -hmm reimagining everything in ways that can be a little bit irrational (laughs) or like not based on fact. Um, But as we've said in previously on the podcast, we use scripture to interpret scripture. And it's very persuasive to me that we do see, as Jamie was mentioning, these other key players of key female shepherds. And so I, I just think that's worth paying attention to that it doesn't the in these passages about Rachel and Zipporah don't seem like they're exceptions or this was a really strange thing. It doesn't treat it in any way as though this was super unusual. It kind of is fairly matter of fact. And so it seems like the role of being a shepherd was just pretty gender neutral, that it probably depended on the makeup of your family and like the makeup of your kids and who was available and who wasn't. And it it seems like it was pretty open-ended. Yeah, I think I I don't mean to make presumptions, but I would probably guess that some of our listeners would assume that we would just like be really excited about that. But we both had the same response to <laughs> that new scholarship because I think it's so, like you said, it's so easy to make things retrofit after the fact. Um, but really it was looking at these verses that made it, become a more compelling theory to say oh it's not just that like we you know saw a female shepherd on the side of the road when we visited Israel but rather like we actually have this in the word and um and these would have been obviously women that are talked about in the story that Israel tells Israel self like the people of God are rehearsing stories of these matriarchs and patriarchs and so um I think that would have been stories that are very familiar to the the people of God as they are you know reminding one another of them and I think what's significant about this for me is that potential of like both men and women are have this kind of supernatural experience if we uh I mean we don't really know the gender of the, the Magi will get to them later in this story. But I would say like based on the education that would be required, it's probably kind of likely that they are men. Um, and so there's something for me that's, I think the significance that I can draw from perhaps female shepherds is that both women and men are experiencing a supernatural invitation 
to join in the story, to come and see, and to have this moment um, of announcement from the Lord. Mm-hmm. Right. This is what's interesting, too, is we could make a case that shepherds were men because we have Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and we have John 10. I'm mm-hmm. the good shepherd. Is it John 10? Mm-hmm. Um, you could say like, oh, see, shepherds are men. You could also make the case that God and Jesus are creating opportunities for women to identify with them, which we have seen in other places. <laughs> we see God mm-hmm. using maternal language about God's self in the Old Testament. We see Jesus using maternal language about himself. So I think that's a really fascinating additional context for those passages of that they're kind of using a gender neutral role to describe themselves to the people of God, I think could be really lovely that you could see a man as being the good shepherd, as like a father shepherding us. And you could also see a woman, you could see a mother shepherding God's people. And I think that's really interesting to think about and to add to our imagination. Yeah, that's so good. Um, uh, the references, as I was kind of digging into this to research for this episode, several of the references were like uh, pointing to pastoral language around shepherds. And so um, the significance that women may have always been shepherds uh, would just add to potential uh, support for female pastoral shepherds. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And Jamie, you had mentioned as we were chatting beforehand about even if these are the only two female shepherds in scripture, there's still some really interesting prophecy in a sense there. So do you want to talk more about that? Yeah. So um, I think the idea that, again, if these are women that the Israelites would have talked about, then there's the potential for it to be like Jesus is coming in the same way that these women shepherds pointed to God moving. And so we see uh, Zipporah being a part of deliverance and Jesus coming in this way of being a deliverer. Um, And we see Rachel being a part of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so um, I think there's something to be said that when people would have thought about this in the original, like ancient Near East, first century, um, that those would have been at the forefront of their mind. And so to have that thought process, it feels like we're doing like some work to get there, but I just don't know that it would have been that much work for some of the original listeners. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. I thought that was such an interesting observation. The idea of these two female shepherds who are connected to just the origins of Israel and then the origins of the Exodus of God delivering his people from bondage. Those are both things that Jesus really embodies and comes to to restore. So yeah, I I think either way, it's really interesting to think about that legacy of women as shepherds, even if it's just these two, but also the possibility that that opens up that women in general could have been shepherds. And are there women that are witnessing the glory of God breaking through the cosmos at the birth of Christ? That's just a really stunning thing to imagine. 
I think we've probably talked more and more in the last like decade around the role of shepherds being like kind of a lowly profession. Um, and so therefore when God announces to the shepherds, um, when the angels announce the birth of Jesus, that there's like this marginalized people being involved. Um, and so I think if we're able to say that with kind of great confidence, then we can also say that there's particular shepherds that would have been thought of. And certainly David probably would have been one of them too. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's very meaningful as well. Um, and so I think the, the role of shepherd is supposed to stir something to say, like, they're some of the first ones to hear about and witness the birth of the Messiah. I think it's supposed to make us think about like, oh, what does that mean? Who has that involved in the past? And how how could that be speaking to God's big announcement? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so good. So um, kind of moving into the story a little bit more, we see in Matthew um, that we are, we are reminded when Jesus is born. And so um, some translations use this language of in the days of Herod and the NIV um, says after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the East came to Jerusalem. So it's pointing to certainly the particular time period. Um, So it's marking history and certainly being a, a part of the story is rooting it in a particular time period in a particular place it also is reminding us of the empire that jesus was born into and i think that can't be like we really need to pay attention to that because it's easy for us to miss that not living in the days of herod but there's something very significant to that that i think speaks to our current world and just reminds us again that Jesus is born into this regime and there's so much to say about that but I I think there's something to pay attention to with the particular bravery that that would mean for Mary and Elizabeth to say yes to the Lord and to their child and to do that um navigating all that it would entail to bring a child into that particular time period I think there's something so courageous that we just often miss in that telling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, those are questions that people ask to this day of, should you bring a child into this world as it mm-hmm. is? Um, and I do think, I don't think decisions should ever just be made based off of fear. So like in general, I don't think that's necessarily a helpful question, but it's still okay to affirm even if that's not the motive for your decision, it's a reality that's surrounding your decision. <laughs> um, and that's just really true that it there are especially like particular periods in history. I think it's always terrifying to bring a fragile life into the world. Um, but especially times where there are very real threats and where they're part of a deeply marginalized and exploited people group who don't have a lot of power, who don't have a lot of protection. And I would feel that, that fear and tension of this is 
a blessing. This is a gift. And this is also really scary and will cost me a lot in emotional and physical energy and just like the responsibility that they're saying yes to is just really something worth understanding and honoring. Yeah. And I think about these women were very aware that they were bearing significant children. Um, and so for them to have that, like you said, that sense of responsibility of what type, like what kind of child they were bringing into the world in a time period where the regime was trying to kill young boys. And so they are so aware of their need, even beyond the need of every parent to protect their child, um, a very particular aspect of that. And I think, yeah, there's just such a uh, courage there. And um, I think it just adds for me, like just another layer to their hope that they were women of a very like robust hope um, that I think we can, we can learn so much from. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. I talked about this in a sermon I preached recently. And so I can't remember if I also talked about it in our episodes about Mary, they're somewhat blurring together. Um, But one thing that is strange to me is, or I think is telling about the state of the church in America, at least is we talk a lot about Mary being really young, which one is a, is kind of creepy. Like she probably was kind of young, but not in the same way that our women, like girls today are young. Like it's a very, you're socialized very differently. She's not actually the same as an eighth grader now. Like she was much more mature and it was very different. And it's a little bit creepy to talk about how young Mary was and make that like a really big thing that we want to emphasize. Um, But what we don't really talk about is her ethnicity and what her ethnicity meant at that time period and that she is a colonized racial minority. And that is a little bit more uncomfortable. And I think we did talk about that at least some in our other episode about Mary, but it also really does to your point, Jamie, it does really amplify the hope that they embody because I think that also gives Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat that much more power that she's someone who has every reason to doubt the goodness and power of God in her life because her lived experience would be very marked by powerlessness and marginalization and historical silence from God over the last 400 years. And yet God visits them in a way that is so clear and profound and good that both of these women are bursting forth with praise and hope for the character of God that the, the, um, just the struggles that they were living in their time period and in just the, the people group that they belong to serve to make them that much more aware of the power and goodness of God to meet them and uplift them and honor them. Yeah. It's, it's why Mary can say in her song of praise that the Lord meets the lowly mm-hmm. and it's not her just being like falsely humble in this moment of like, Oh, you want me to carry the Lord? Um, but she really is aware of the fact that God actually does meet us when we have no other way that, um, 
that the Lord is meeting those, um, all of our needs. And I think when I think about Elizabeth too, um, we, we talk about her being old, um, which we normally do that in a way that speaks to what we think about aging, um, in the sense of like, she is old, she was forgotten. Um, and, but I think there's so much to say there about her hope in the sense that she was so courageous, not just for the like time period of being in the days of Herod, but also like the maternal mortality rate already would have been so high in that time period, but especially for an older woman, um, we already have all kinds of weird language to discuss that in our culture, like Mm -hmm. a geriatric pregnancy. Ew. Um, (laughs) But I think to think about Elizabeth and the way that she would have had to cling to that hope in such a, a real tangible way to say, I believe that I'm going to survive this. And I believe that I'm going to like actually bring life into the world and be there to raise this child. Um, I just don't think we, we give her that kind of credit for how deep that hope would have been and how really like a daily thing that would have had to be for her to trust in the words that had been spoken to her. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. And it makes me think about how she's resisting the doubt and fear of her ancestors in the wilderness who experienced God's deliverance. And then we read this last week in Exodus that then their first thought when they encounter threat or danger is, did God just bring us here to kill us? Mm. And how she could have had that same thought of, did God just give me a pregnancy to kill me in childbirth? Mm -hmm. You know, that's a very real thing that would make sense for her to fear that. And that like, again, people before her, have essentially had that same type of thought. And so I do think it is really profound that she is hoping in the Lord of, if God gave this to me, he's going to see me through it. And it's because there's something really good that's going to come from this, not just to sort of torment me for no reason, but to actually allow me to be part of something really special. That's so good. Because there's something about when we remember those like other narratives it becomes it really is I mean we talked about the generational sin that was happening in the wilderness and it becomes a generational sin of Israel like we it doesn't go away when they get into the promised land and so I think that's such a good point of that would have been a real possibility for her to like lean back on that and say particularly like in a period of silence they're in 400 years of silence it would have made it all the more difficult to actually like believe in the promises of the Lord after not hearing fresh promises for 400 years. Mm -hmm. So uh, moving as we just want to keep like unraveling some of these threads of ways that women are just consistently woven into this story. We wanted to talk a little bit about typology as a way of reading scripture Um, we see this pretty consistently throughout the new Testament, that there's references to things in the old Testament, that there's, um, ways in which 
the old testament um was a the scripture uses language of a tutor to teach us the ways of the lord so that when the lord is doing a new thing we're able to recognize it and see it in kind of have a framework it's actually the kindness of the lord because it gives us a framework to say oh a, a sacrificial system was supposed to teach us that and teach us about our need and now we get to have this picture of what we really need the lord for um so in god's kindness he has all of these ways that god has been teaching god's people about his nature his character who he is and what to expect of the messiah and um and so we see like some particular ways that that's referenced in the new testament um we're told in hebrews uh that's a, a place really if you want to think about like types and scripture it is all through hebrews um so we're told in there that the tabernacle and the realities that were included in the tabernacle are a type and a shadow of the things to come um in first peter there's a reference to noah and his family being saved through water and that um peter's saying this is a prefiguring of baptism, a type of baptism. Um, and then, of course, we have Paul, who is has this very long discourse in Romans that I think we have talked about um, of this picture of the first and second Adam. So the first Adam who uh, brought sin into the world and Jesus is the second Adam who brings redemption into the world. Um and so um, I think there's something so fun about beginning to see these threads and the way that God is uh, weaving things together, the way that we get to see a picture of how God wants to move in our own lives. And um, it can be really helpful for us to identify the ways that that is part of the picture that God is pointing to in scripture. Mm hmm. Yeah, this was really revolutionary for me to be reading scripture this way. I I used to read it in a fairly disjointed way of like kind of things in isolation or things on their own and just kind of like in disconnected parts, essentially. And I think a lot of us grow up kind of in churches that do that or sort of that's how we're socialized around reading the Bible. And I think we miss out on so much when we aren't looking at the coherence of scripture. How does scripture fit together? How does it agree with itself? How does it build on itself? And to me, it's actually a real apologetic for the, I'm just using a lot of big words tonight. I don't know why, but uh, <laughs> the verity of scripture, you know, of like the, the truth of scripture that the fact that it is taking place across so many locations places time periods authors and there's so much consistency to me is genuinely miraculous like that is only could only happen supernaturally that level of agreement and so i just think that's so profound and when we study scripture that way to look at the ways that it builds on itself and agrees with itself i think we're only building our faith that this is truly the word of god it couldn't have come about in any other way except by divine power. And so it's not just a like cool literary exercise that, that, you know, that can be a little bit part of it, but it really is, I think, an exercise in 
growing our faith in seeing the consistency of God and the wisdom and forethought of God to lay out his plan from the beginning. And I think um, one thing I want to make clear is it can sound a little bit like when you're referring to um, a person from the Old Testament or a structure like the tabernacle in the Old Testament as a type, um, it can sound almost like a flippancy around the like historicity of that, that, um, and so that's not what we're doing. Like we believe that those are real things that happened and also that God was using it to foreshadow something that is to come. And, um, so I just want to make that really clear that it's not, um, oh, it, it is just a type, but rather that Mm -hmm. there's something that's added to it. Uh, which really, like you said, it just adds to the power of the word and the power of Jesus that he is often the one who embodies so many aspects of these things. So when we look at like um, the prophet, priests, and kings of the Old Testament, that Jesus is the one who embodies all of these things where very uh, rarely did we see people even embody like more than one of those roles. Um, And yet when we see Jesus enter the story, he is able to uh, embody all of these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So beautiful. Yeah. So we want to talk about some of the types that we see around Advent and specifically ones that involve women and that revolve around women. So I'm going to start kind of as a segue from, as we're thinking about the time of Herod and the real risk that that was to just be a mother and to say yes to family Um, that we know in the book of Matthew in Matthew chapter two, that when the Magi, when the wise men come to visit, they're looking for the Messiah. They go to the King first. They go to Herod first because they're like, Oh, surely he will know about this. Herod was notoriously paranoid. He was notoriously um, murderous. (laughs) He literally, Uh, murdered several of his own sons because he was afraid that they would usurp him, that they would try to overthrow him. He had multiple literal fortresses where he would kind of pull up and uh, defend himself from any possible threat, either real or imagined. And so he's someone who's very jealous and very easily threatened. So his reaction to the wise men coming, to the magi coming, is to then order to kill every child under every son under the age of two. So I will read that section for us. Um, it's probably somewhat familiar, but it's, it's not bad to refresh it. So this is from Matthew chapter two. I'm going to read 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in, in that all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. So again, that might be somewhat familiar, but I do just think it's so important to sit with that a little bit for a couple reasons. One, it's very reminiscent of Moses and Um, The story of the Hebrew midwives that we did a whole episode about where Pharaoh is threatened by the people of, by the Israelites, by the Hebrews. 
he's worried about a political overthrow as well. And so he creates a, a policy, a decree that male children are to be thrown into the Nile, are to be exterminated, are to be executed. And we see God working to protect uh, a deliverer, to protect Moses, who would then deliver people, his people from their bondage to that evil regime. And we, this is a very clear echo of the way that Pharaoh tried to protect his throne, his rule, by killing Jewish children. Herod is doing the exact same thing. And both times, these evil regimes are going to be unsuccessful. They're going to actually kind of contribute to um, the, the one who would, who would overthrow them in, in the goodness of God. And I, I want to sit a little bit too then with, so we have this, I think, really lovely type of um, Moses and Jesus and this really beautiful parallel. And I also just really appreciate that Matthew's narrative pauses to acknowledge the grief and the suffering that surrounds that. Um, that it's not just, oh, this is really interesting <laughs> as like an intellectual historical parallel, um, that these are real people and real families who are being hurt by that and how often women are the ones who suffer the most as a result of injustice and evil and evil power, um, those in power exerting their evil for destruction. Um, and so I, I, I want, I'm going to read that, that passage again from, from Jeremiah that it says a voice was heard in Rama weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. And one, I think that's a real affirmation, even of the episode we did recently about grief, that there is a real biblical place for grief and that being a right and important response to significant loss and oppression. And I think it's the scripture acknowledging the the mothers and the women who are so deeply impacted by these evil leaders. And I think giving honor to their grief and loss and marking that this is not just a passing incident in Israel's history, but these are real families and real women who are feeling the pain of these losses. Yeah, I love the way that you've pointed that out. And I think there's something about um, even the other stories that we've talked about. There's something about these like wailing women of scripture that we are supposed to learn from that. Like they're not saying, um, you know, Rachel is silly or hysterical. Like there's not a sense of that at all, but rather like it's supposed to point us to how deep the loss is um but it's pointing out basically like these women are right to be wailing this is the appropriate response so i think there's something about that even that's so affirming of women in a way that we often aren't even in our current culture of like the emotions that women um are socialized to carry more to the surface um and I think the Lord is so clear to affirm those things and to actually say, like, basically learn from this, that this is a response to the destruction that these evil regimes have caused. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there can be a real danger in reformed circles to kind of see prophecy 
in prophecy fulfillment in kind of a utilitarian way and like oh yep that had to happen to fulfill this prophecy and obviously the passage uses some of that language of like this does fulfill a prophecy from jeremiah but we can get very cold in the way that we would approach prophecy fulfillment and make it kind of analytical and detached and not actually think about the real human impact and that creates a sense of seeing people as a means to an end of like oh those infant boys you know it was just so the prophecy would be fulfilled moving Mm -hmm. on and that's so dismissive and i just again very detached from real human experience and i i think that's not the heart of god i don't think god is ever like oh well it had to happen oh well I don't think God is ever like that. And so I do think it's important to pause on this verse about grieving women in Israel, both at the, in the time of Moses and in the time of, of Christ. And to note, again, these are real losses. This isn't just like, oh, this had to happen. So this could happen, blah, blah, blah. But this, this still breaks the heart of God. This is still destruction and evil. And it is part of a prophecy fulfillment, but God doesn't cause it to happen in order to fulfill the prophecy. I think God just understands the reality of our fallen world and of sinful misuses of power. And so God is able to anticipate that, but God isn't just making this happen so that like his word can be fulfilled. God is also grieving along with Rachel and the women of Israel. That's so true. And I think there's, something too, like, because we remove the humanity of it, we don't think about Rachel being mentioned here. And so today when I was rereading uh, these verses and thinking about Rachel being a female shepherd, I just had to wonder, like, is this purposeful? Is this supposed to be tying these things together of the grief and the Lord uh, revealing God's self to the same grieving shepherd um and i i can't help but think like of course that's exactly how god would work and um but i think it would be so easy to miss that because we don't acknowledge the humanity and so we miss like that rachel is the one leading the weeping women um as a matriarch of israel yeah that's so good because i in passing was a little bit puzzled because i'm like Really, technically, it should be Leah weeping because this is the tribe of Judah that are being impacted here in Bethlehem. So I was like, huh, that's interesting that it says Rachel specifically when, you know, Leah is the mother of the majority of the tribes of Israel and of Judah specifically. So I think that's really interesting to potentially connect it to Rachel as a shepherdess in Israel and what that also represents. Hmm. That's such a good point about Leah, too. Um, and just further points out that like, there is, there has to be like a reason that this is named here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to give just, just sort of another fun exercise to think about as we are kind of looking through scripture and prophecy and what that means. So as we were preparing for the episode and I was reading the passage in Jeremiah that Matthew is referencing that I just read. So it's in Jeremiah 31 so I was just reading further in the chapter to just make sure I was understanding the whole context. And most of the chapter is about a, f- a promise of future restoration for Israel. It's, it's, a pro- it's a prophecy about the coming exile. And also the whole book of Jeremiah is a prophecy about the coming Babylonian exile and God's promise of future restoration. And so I was just 
going through and Jeremiah 31:22 just caught my attention and so we want to like just discuss it with y'all for a minute so you can keep thinking about it as well so is God is speaking through Jeremiah again speaking to a future restoration and um says return o virgin Israel return to these your cities how long will you waver o faithless daughter for the lord has created a new thing on the earth a woman encircles a man and Jamie and I at different times had both seen that and we were like, what? <laughs> what does that mean? That's very specific that it's a new thing, a woman encircling a man. What on earth is that about? And um, we don't totally know. We were looking in the ESV study Bible, which isn't always going to be the most helpful when it comes to explaining women in scripture. Um, part of what they said was it may be sort of a colloquial proverb that was unique at the time and that we don't really know the meaning of it has been lost over time. And they also, they gave kind of multiple other interpretations of essentially like the weak being restored by the strong or something like that. And the study Bible said ancient interpreters used to think that it was a reference to Mary's womb encircling Jesus. And what the study Bible said, oh, that doesn't really seem to fit the passage. Modern scholars don't really think that. And I'm like, hmm, maybe disagree. <laughs> um, so I just think it's interesting that it's saying a new thing, a woman encircling a man. What the heck is that talking about? And it's in the midst of this passage that's speaking to, again, future restoration and in which we have a specific prophecy about Jesus that the book of Matthew references. So we just wanted to put that out there to think about and consider. Yeah, I think there's so much there that's so compelling, but honestly, some of our ancient uh, interpreters had less fear around their like Marian. Um, I think a lot of like Protestant theologians now have a fear of making Mary like too much um, cause we don't want to appear like overly Marian, um, about it and which would be like a more Catholic interpretation of it. Um, and so I think it makes sense to like ask the question, what did ancient, um, scholars have to say about this? Because they didn't have that same hesitancy to ascribe honor and dignity and even prophetic reference to Mary. Um, and so, I think that's very interesting, um, even just for that reason alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just switched over to the NIV, which, uh, so the ESV is a more literal word for word translation. And the NIV is a little bit more like translating general meaning rather than necessarily word for word. So the NIV says the Lord will create a new thing on the earth. A woman will return to the man, but there's a translator's note of, or, the woman will protect the man, which is also, I just feel that's interesting. Um, mm -hmm. So one thing that we were thinking is that, first of all, a lot of Old Testament prophecy is about multiple things. It's often for Israel in the immediate short term, and it often has layers of future prophecy for God's future kingdom. And that's well known. That's not something that we are saying or like <laughs> making up. That's something that most Bible scholars would acknowledge or say. 
And so to me, it makes sense that it might be both about Israel as a woman will return to God as a man. Um, like this sort of imagery of like a woman returning to a man, finding protection, um, encircling a man, like embracing a man, that it could be a metaphor of Israel returning to God. And <laughs> it could also be about the mother of God, <laughs> literally encircling, protecting, embracing the the son of God. So we just thought that was super interesting that has potential significance for Christmas time and for, you know, Advent prophecy. So we wanted to bring that to your attention for y'all to think about and potentially research on your own. Yeah. And I think for us, part of the reason we wanted to share that is just to say, like, there's always something new to keep considering because we both have come across that verse in the past and, um, and just thought, interesting what is this um and I think it it points us to the mystery of God's word the like consistent revelation that God gives um in the sense of like ancient rabbis used to talk about the word of God as like a a gem where you keep turning it and seeing like a new aspect of it and so I I just think there's uh the invitation there um that we ourselves have experienced of uh, the Lord continuing to reveal something new. Um, but I think that is a perfect lead in as well to considering Mary as a, a biblical type. Um, and so there's a couple different ways that I think we can see that. And one is seeing Mary as the new Eve. So if Jesus is the second Adam, uh, we can also see Mary as this redemptive picture of who Eve is. Um, and so often really what Mary also, the the typology of Mary is significant because it's an invitation for also how the church um, can then live. So I believe the church is also like redeemed Eve. Um, and so I think we also see Mary as like the redemptive picture of Eve um, that we see this uh, way that the offspring of Eve was a picture of destruction and death, quite literally. Like the first brothers were, um, there was a murder in their family line. And I think we see um, that picture of like life coming from Mary being this kind of typology of a new Eve. Um, and I think there's so much that we could unpack just with that one alone, but I think we'll leave our Eve episode to, to kind of do the work of that one. Um, and the one that I'm really intrigued by is the way that Mary, um, just in general, bearing the Lord, this, this language that was a lot more common again, like in, uh, some ancient study of Mary is Mary as the God bearer, um, and what that could mean for us. And I love this picture of Mary being basically like a second ark, um, that she is carrying the new covenant within her. Um, and when we think about what is in the ark of the covenant, that was the symbol of the covenant that God was making with God's people. And, um, 
if you are at all familiar with that, you might be thinking of stories where like the Ark was lost and we see um, just great care and holiness attributed to it. Um, and so part of what was in the Ark um, that made it holy was that it contained the Ten Commandments, it contained manna, and it contained the priestly, um, Aaron's priestly rod. And so these were, um, and this symbol of the presence of the Lord coming with them. Um, and so the presence of the Lord is what really was significant about the ark. Um, and that these were ways in which the presence of the Lord was depicted, um, within the tangible aspects. And when we think about who Jesus is, all of these things are reflected that um, Jesus is the word made flesh, um, that Jesus is the bread of life, and that Jesus is our great high priest. Um, and so I I think it's so beautiful to think about that picture of Mary carrying the new covenant in this way. Yeah, that's beautiful. This is so funny. So my brain went to a totally different direction um, when I saw the word ark. And I think it actually also works because I, I think what you're saying is the most accurate one, <laughs> but um, there might be additional layers where um, I thought of Moses again and the basket that he's in in the Nile, the word for basket is ark and that that's kind of an echo of Noah's ark as well of God preserving mm -hmm. and protecting his people, defending his people and giving them a future hope. Um, and for sure, of course, Moses as the deliverer of his people from bondage. So I, yeah, that I think is also so interesting to think about Mary as a symbol of hope of protection of like a preserver and a, a way forward for, for new life and deliverance. I just think is really lovely. That's so fun. I wonder if it's the same word. We should look that up to see, is it the same word in the Hebrew the whole time? Cause I'm, a, is Ark of the Covenant the same word as like Noah's right. Ark? I assume so, but I don't know. That is very interesting. Um, wow. I love that that's like what you thought of when <laughs> uh, you saw the word too, because um, cause I, I think there's so, so much about that. That's just very like compelling for us as we think about what, what that means that God was so intentional to like weave these things together again to give us these pictures of refuge and protection and that God will be the one to make a way um, where even, you know, Moses um, kind of having this mysterious way of there's so much about Moses' story that we talked about. Um, but I think, yeah, it points to God really being the one who does make a way. Um, and I think this, this picture of Mary as like the one who bears the presence of the Lord within her is a really beautiful way of thinking about um, Mary as a type and what that invites us into um, that we carry the presence of the Lord within us. And do we think about um, the magnitude of that? Do we think about that as bearing the Lord in the world and just, what that really means and even these different aspects of the ark um to to consider like if if mary was carrying the word made flesh and we are the ones to 
be obedient to that word um, and to offer that uh, like fresh word um, to other people. I think there's something for us to think about that and what it is to be sustained by the bread of life um, and to to offer that to others to say, come and, you know, the scripture that we read just last week about the the bread without cost. Um, and then this priestly rod um, is such a picture of like the Lord being the one to both call Aaron, like that's part of what the priestly rod was. And so I think there's something there for us around that picture of calling and anointing and being a priest unto the Lord that we are always supposed to be ministering first and foremost to God and God's heart and to be um, priests unto the ministry to the Lord of just ushering in God's presence everywhere we are. And so I think there's so much there when we think about the invitation that that gives us of what it is to bear God's presence within us and to invite other people uh, through our very lives as we do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so lovely. That's such a good reminder. And yeah, is again, speaking to the lived experience of our faith and the community of faith that this isn't just sort of esoteric or disembodied moments or experiences the fact like again literally the word became flesh and dwelt among us that like the word the the covenant of the law that was contained in the ark is now contained in mary's body in mary's womb and that she's an embodied and enfleshed ark and experiencing that communion with the presence of god it just makes it so real like again these aren't just sort of abstract theological concepts they are theological concepts concepts but they are embodied <laughs> concepts they are not just something out there um and sort of ephemeral or spiritual only they are something that really does impact our living breathing walking around human life and the way that mary gives us such a beautiful example of that engagement of that attunement of treasuring these things in her heart and seeing these experiences and encounters with God as treasures, I just think is so powerful. Mm. I love bringing that language that has always been like a favorite of mine about Mary, that she treasured those things in her heart. Um, I love bringing that into like this particular aspect of what does that look like for us as we continue to like find our place as God bearers in the world? Um, how are we modeling Mary as we treasure those those moments in our own hearts mm -hmm. yeah so good so we've got a few more of these I think really fun just advent threads that we are seeing in these types and just consistencies and patterns in scripture that are played out in the lives of women so we want to get back to Elizabeth a little bit and relate her story to Hannah's story and we did that a little bit in our first episode about Mary. We did mention that there are ways in which Elizabeth is like a second Hannah. And so we just want to expand on that and dig into that even more, where these two women are dramatically similar and their their role in God's story is also dramatically similar in a way that was meant to be a clear message to the people of Israel. So just a refresher. So Hannah is experiencing barrenness 
and she prays for the Lord. And we have a whole episode about that. We recommend you revisiting that. Um, And God hears her prayer and it's part of his just divine purposes in her life. And she gives birth to a son, Samuel, who would become one of the most important prophets in Israel. And part of what makes Samuel so important is he is the prophet who anoints David as king. And David is Israel's by far most successful and good king. He's Israel's greatest king that they ever have. And so Samuel is the son of a barren woman who becomes a prophet who anoints Israel's king and a covenant king, a king who has uh, a a forever and eternal covenant with God. And that is meant to give us a deliberate, purposeful reminder when we see Hannah, when we see Elizabeth's story, we are meant to think of Hannah and we're meant to think of Samuel and Samuel's role. So when Elizabeth, also experiencing barrenness, is um, blessed with a miraculous pregnancy, her son John becomes a prophet and her son John baptizes Jesus functionally, and Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit at the Jordan River at the moment of his baptism. And so John is also this prophet who is a conduit for proclaiming this new king in Israel and this prophesied king in Israel, who is the fulfillment of David's lineage um, of God's promise to that one of David's descendants would always be on the throne and Jesus will now be on the throne forever. And so these are just two really beautiful stories of these two women that were meant to capture our attention, that were meant to capture the attention of the people of Israel. And we are to see that now, too, as as still believers and Bible readers, that we are to see, whoa, the similarities are meant to point us to the magnitude of what God is doing, of how he raised up David and then how Jesus is the fulfillment and expansion of that covenant with David. Yeah, I'm thinking too about um, Hannah isn't necessarily stated that she's a part of the priestly line, but she gives her child to basically be in the priestly line. Um, And Elizabeth is, it is stated that she was in the priestly uh, line. So there's something even there, I think that's significant, but also these are both prophets, their children in the midst of seasons of silence. And so uh, Samuel comes because um, Eli's sons are evil and the basically Samuel like births a new prophetic movement in the people of God in Israel. And John does the same thing. So he births a brand new prophetic movement um, that would be unto the the new covenant. And so there's something there that uh, these are both prophets that are speaking in a place uh, where there has been uh, silence and even um, some uh, like mixture within the prophetic line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so important. And then we've got one more that we want to share with you. So this is something that we teased in our Esther episode and then didn't actually come back to. So we want to bring it full circle. <laughs> and it's perfect because it is related to Advent and the Christmas season. So when we talked about Esther, we talked about how her, it was actually her Persian name is Esther and that her Esther means star in Persian. And we alluded to the idea that God did that in a really subversive way, that 
her Persian name was meant to be a tool of assimilation, was meant to kind of rob her of her Jewish identity and weaken really her connection and her sense of identity. And yet God uses it actually to be a prophecy about who Esther would be and how he would use her. So here again, we have a then and later prophecy that Esther was a a star who arose um, during the Persian empire who defended and made a way for her people to, to persist and be blessed by God. And there is, I think a real foreshadow in her name of star of what would lead the magi of the wise men to the birth of Christ. As we well know from all our children's Christmas stories, they follow a star. And so I I do really think it's meant to be a, a prophecy and a foreshadow of the ways that God would use the presence of the Israelites in exile in Babylon and then in the Persian empire, which are to the east of Israel as we have these wise men coming from the east. These are this was the region where the Israelites were taken unwillingly where they were experiencing a really unwanted and difficult season of life where they were chastised by the Lord and had to have a really deep learning experience. Um and also that they brought the scripture with them and they worshiped God and they learned to honor God in a new way and they learned to stand in their their Israelite identity in really beautiful and profound ways and resist idolatry. And part of how God honors their legacy in, in um, exile is through wise men. We actually see Daniel um, working alongside the wise men in Babylon, but they learn the Hebrew scriptures and in their sort of pluralism, in their desire to just pursue scholastic interests and academia, they're reading widely. And it's through reading Hebrew scriptures that they understand, hey, this star lines up with prophecies that were that we have read in Hebrew scripture. And that really sparks our interest. And we want to go see what that's about. And that God leads them through, by astronomy, which was also just part of their scholarly work and part of their work as wise men was to study the sky. And so God is just meeting them where they already are, where they are interested, where they are focused. God is revealing himself to him, to them and leading them to the gospel, leading them to become really like to spread the church um, in, in the early world at that time. Uh, So I just love that idea of like Esther as a star, as a prophecy of Israel's legacy in exile in the East, and that God would bring that back to allow the gospel to spread throughout the world. Hmm. It's such a fun picture. And I think, like you said, it points to the fact that the gospel is doing what God always intended for God's people to do. But the birth of Jesus is this uh, kind of culmination point of the gospel actually being a blessing to all nations and all nations being uh, able to hear that and come to it, that they get to come and see uh, this king. Mm-hmm. I think there's so much there that's really fun and um, I I've always loved the idea that the magi are like at work and that the Lord like interrupts them meets them in their workplace it's very like vocational stewardship uh, moment of uh, the Lord meeting them in the midst of like you said exactly the things that they were interested in and so 
uh, this picture of like these potentially female shepherds who were kind of doing like uh, lowly work um, and the Lord meeting and inviting the academics of the day to come and see that um, that the birth of Jesus is bringing together potentially women and men in that picture, but also uh, that the gospel really is for everyone, that it's for all nations, that it's for all people, and that there's um, a way of the expansiveness of God's kingdom being revealed even in the birth of Jesus, which I think is so beautiful and powerful. We want to really uh, just thank you for being along with us for this exploration of all of these different Advent threads. And we hope it's been meaningful to you. I think one of the dangers of the Christmas story can be uh, familiarity and just having that be kind of I, you know, we read it every year and it's just kind of becomes cute and sanitized. And so we hope that this has been an invitation to hearing from the Lord uh, in just a new and fresh way um, in the midst of this season. And we, we do pray that you would have a very meaningful end of your Advent season and Christmas. Um, and we hope that this has added to it and brought, um, new life to some of these passages. Thanks for listening with us and for uh, joining us in this Advent season. And we do want to remind you that we have our merch for sale. Um, and so you can find that in the show notes and um, continue to share these episodes with uh, friends. And you can find us on social media at Excavate Podcast. And um, if you want to review and rate this podcast and whatever platform you're listening to it, it really does help people uh, find the podcast easier and helps share it with other people. So thank you so much for joining us. And we hope that this has helped you continue to uncover your place in God's story.